Hello, and welcome back to Endeavor, uh, both the video show and the audio podcast. I'm your host, Jason Breitkoff, and I'm with Christy Davin. Hello. Hello. And <laughs> we're here to talk about um, an article that's just posted to our blog and on our Facebook page on SAT math versus ACT math. And the reason why we're talking about that is because uh, for a lot of families, the feedback I've received about their decision-making process between the two tests is that the math ends up being a determining factor. Um, I don't know if that's the best reason to choose between the two tests, but we will talk about it uh, both assuming it is and maybe perhaps even challenging that idea. Hey, Christy, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So just for our listeners and viewers at home, uh, I've asked Christy to be here. To, you know, I'm kind of the expert on this topic in, in, in Chiton because of my years of tutoring and teaching SAT and ACT, but uh, Christy has a background in communications and... Um, and you've, if you've seen our previous uh, episode on you can't uh, get a job with that major, we talked with Christy about her English major. So we're really talking about like communicating uh, together. And so I wanted somebody to like bounce my ideas off of and talk about it. And also Christy is a parent of high school students. So this is a conversation she's having with her own children. So I thought it would be great to talk to her about this. So, so you have two, two kids, I understand. I do. I have a senior in high school. He's about to graduate. And I have a freshman. In high school, he's the one. Uh, he's already starting to look at colleges, and interesting, he is. Well, these days the the junk mail comes earlier and earlier. So mm. I think that he got on a bunch of mailing lists, maybe when he did the PSATs, or hmm. um, I don't even know to be honest. He doesn't even know how he got on these yeah. lists, but he's getting lots of junk mail, and so he's starting to consider, um, you know, environment and size of college hmm. and courses of study and and uh, climate. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. A couple things. I know a lot of high schools, not a large number, but a growing tiny number of high schools are having their freshmen take the PSAT or the Mm -hmm. pre-ACT. For example, the high school in the town where I live, uh, the freshmen do take the PSAT. And then they take the pre-ACT as sophomores. So... That's not unusual, and the idea that he would start getting uh, brochures, letters, or virtual junk mail, emails, etc., from colleges is not surprising. But on the other hand, and I, I think we've kind of talked about this in other episodes, starting that college search process as early as reasonably possible for each individual is not a bad idea. No, and I think that at this point, what it means for us, it's not this huge process. It's not a lot of his time. He's just sort of, you know, it's organic when something comes up, when a a college shows up on TV or we hear that somebody got accepted to a certain college, we talk about the pros and cons of that place, whether or not Mm -hmm. he might think it is a viable option for him down the road. And and that's becoming more common now. I mean, I speak from experience in this process because my parents were very... um, eager to talk about college with me, and we did start talking about it when I was a freshman. But back in the day, that was actually very unusual. Very few of my friends were having these conversations, or my classmates, or my peers, whether they were, you know. I went to a high school with 5,000 students, graduating class of almost 900. Not everybody in my grade was my friend. I gotta be honest. Um, not that they were bad people, I just didn't know them, because it was such a large Your high school. Your entire graduating class is larger than my entire high school at the time I graduated. I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. I hear that a lot. Um, in fact, I've actually tutored students whose graduating class was smaller than my gym class. My gym class, 
at Elizabeth High School in Elizabeth, New Jersey was 128 students. That's crazy. Yeah. So it was a very large high school. That's why I say that not everybody in my grade was my friend because I just didn't know people. There were literally hundreds of people that I can see in my yearbook that I never met mm -hmm. in four years of high school. Mm -hmm. And that's not any fault of their own and I'm not speaking ill of them. Um, but I know from my peer group and a lot of the classmates I had, even in the honors and AP classes, uh, my classmates, my peers, my friends were not thinking about college, were not discussing college with their parents when they were freshmen. My parents were unusual in that way. And I took the SAT as early as my freshman year, which was you very took unusual. You five times? I did I take it, yes. Conversations? Yes, five times. In fact, March of my junior year, which is when most high school students still to this day in, in high school take the SAT for the first time, was my fifth and last. I didn't take the SAT my senior year because I had taken it five times and achieved a score that I preferred. I, I was shooting for a certain goal that was right in the middle of the range for my top choice college. I hit that exact number and I was done. Did you see steady progress over those five times? Did you see sort of a little bit of a roller coaster? Did you super score? Uh, super scoring, like I don't know if you recall from when you were, because we're around the same age, uh, super scoring wasn't a thing back then, so you really wanted that single individual score to be best. Super scoring really came in to be starting in the late 90s. So it really wasn't a consideration. So I did see progress uh, from the first time to the fifth time. Every time I took it, there was an improvement, but it wasn't steady, it wasn't linear. Uh, my first score as a freshman was slightly below average. Uh, my second score was right on average and it, a solid improvement. And then my sophomore year and then the two I took my junior year in the fall and the spring were significantly higher than the one that I took my sophomore year. So it wasn't steady. Do you think that some of that is due to taking it five times and being comfortable with it? Or is it because as you got further into your schooling, it was content that you had covered in school? No. Um, I don't think it was either of those. I took an SAT course before my junior year. Okay. And that, for me, accounted for the big jump. That was a 200-plus point jump from my sophomore year score to my first uh, junior year score. And then I had another 70-point jump just from additional practice on my own. Uh, and maybe that one was probably due to knowing more. Mm -hmm. But um, I was in an accelerated program. I was in a, in a gifted and talented program in, in middle school and high school. So I was taking, uh, I took algebra two as an eighth grader. And I took uh, geometry as a freshman. So content-wise, you were already ahead I, of the game. I was already where I needed to be for the content of the SAT. So it was, uh, I think it was more emotional maturity mm -hmm. and, and kind of problem-solving ability based on uh, just, yeah, just maturity and combined with the, taking, that, taking that SAT class that summer. Well, there's one thing that I've learned from you as I listen to you talk to students is that uh, the SAT especially can be really tricky mm -hmm. and taking it more um, and having more familiarity with their format and the way they ask questions, especially in the math. Yeah. Uh, the... And uh, I saw this in one of the classes that I observed is the Pythagorean right triangle, the three, four, five. Mm -hmm. They trick kids by putting the numbers in different places. Mm -hmm. And kids see that and they're like, oh, I know this one. And right. they think it's automatically the Pythagorean theorem and they pick the automatic answer and it's wrong. Right. Um, yeah. Which is why I think that practice is so important because it teaches them, especially with the SAT, about the trickiness. Absolutely. I think that accounted for, I think, some of the growth between my first, second, and third time was just taking practice tests and using the available materials back in the day that existed. Uh, but then taking the course and really understanding how the test works made the difference. Now, this is important that you're bringing this up. The SAT is, even to this day, 
trickier than the ACT. Now, I, growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, the way I did, the ACT wasn't really an option for me. You know, I grew up in New Jersey, similar to New England where I live now. Um, those were SAT zones, SAT mm-hmm. bulwarks. Mm-hmm. Um, whole Northeast is, isn't it? Hmm? Isn't the whole Northeast basically SAT? I mean, I don't remember anybody ever talking about the ACT. Exactly. Growing up. Yeah, and that's the thing that up until the late 90s, you know, turn of the century, uh, the SAT and the ACT were really regionalized. The SAT was uh, created in the 1920s by the college board at the request of the Ivy League schools and a few other colleges, all in the Northeast. And so those are the schools that used it, and it didn't become a truly national test in many ways until the 1950s. And by then, um, the largest university system with the most students in the country was already the University of California system. So by that point, it was a national test and colleges across the country were using it because they wanted to keep up with the Ivy Leagues. But there was kind of a revolt starting at the University of Iowa. In the early 1950s, a group of professors and administrators at the University of Iowa decided not only to stop using the uh, the SAT, to refuse to take it, and they wrote their own test, which they called ACT. Um, at the time, they called it American College Testing, but they don't use that name anymore. It's like it doesn't exist. It's just ACT. And they wrote that test, and schools throughout the middle of the country uh, hooked into that test and saw it as a better metric for uh, college readiness. And that's why you found by the 1960s, schools in the middle of the country, the Midwest, um, you know, the mountain region, that area and parts of the south, states were pretty much ACT only. Along the east coast, all the way down to Florida, and along the west coast, and surprisingly Texas, were SAT states. And what was it about this new test that those middle states thought was better? Well, they found that the SAT, um, and again, a lot of people have the same complaint, they're not wrong, by focusing so much on uh, trickiness and problem solving that Uh, you could game the test. The idea of test prep is not new. It's not something that popped up in the 90s, although the 90s is really when the test prep industry blew up and became a huge billion-dollar industry with companies like Kaplan, Princeton Review, and Sylvan. But the test prep had existed since the 50s, and people were figuring out how to prepare for the SAT. So the ACT folks, those college professors and administrators, from the University of Iowa decided they wanted a test that was more knowledge-based. And even to this day, you can say that the ACT is more based in knowledge. The questions tend to be more straightforward in general. Now, in my opinion, there are still plenty of tricky questions on the ACT. In fact, right now I'm teaching an ACT class and I can think about a bunch of questions that I reviewed with my students, uh, it was last night actually, that were all based on how tricky they were, and that's what tripped up the students. And when we talk about tricky, we're talking about the way they word the questions. We're talking about confusing language, um, setting up problems with missing information, or um, information that is designed to look like one thing but be another. Or sometimes they give you a number that you don't need. Extra information is a huge part of that. Yeah, they'll overwhelm you with a really long word problem with extra information. The SAT uh, writers revel in that. That's most, if not all, of the SAT math. Now, of course, I can talk about 
the English section versus the grammar writing section on the SAT, the two reading sections, and there are those same things. The SAT is a little bit trickier, the ACT is a little bit more straightforward, but it's really in the math where you can most clearly see it, which is why I think we were, I wanted to focus on math in this discussion. That it's the math on the ACT has a lot more straight up just calculation questions, a lot more straight up, here's the geometric figure, solve for x. Where there are those on the SAT, but they really focus much more, overwhelmingly so, on the word problems. Now I've noticed on practice SATs, I see that there are there's kind of a, a key of, of sorts at the beginning that give you the, the formula for the, di the diameter of a circle. Ah, the, yes. The formula for the area of a circle, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Does the ACT do that as well? This is the most frustrating thing for students. At the beginning of every SAT math section, there's the instruction page, and at the bottom of the instruction page is the reference information. They just say reference. Now it's funny that you need an entire instruction page for an SAT section for the math. Here's the instructions. Uh, it's multiple choice questions. Pick one of the multiple choice answers. That's all you need to know. It's like it's not that deep. But they do give you this reference information and in the reference information you'll see formulae for uh, area of a rectangle, area and circumference of a circle, uh, volume of three-dimensional figures like a rectangular prism, uh, a, right, a right cylinder, a right square triangle, Pardon me, pyramid, all these figures, some information on angles, you know, how many degrees in a circle, that sort of thing. And you almost use none of it on the SAT math. In 2016, a lot of people are aware of this, the SAT did a big rewrite of the test. One of the things that they did was make the test look and feel much more like the ACT, removing the majority of the differences between the two tests. They are more alike than they've ever been. And that's, the SAT people did that on purpose. At least in my opinion, they haven't said that. Um, but one of the things that they did was to differentiate the test is they removed almost all of the geometry from See, and that's the, fun part. the math. Well, for, for some people. Like, I always like to joke that there's only two types of people in the world. Algebra people and geometry people, and never the twain shall meet. Um, but yeah, there's only about 5% of the questions in SAT math are geometry. On the ACT, up to a third of the questions are geometry questions. Now they're not all going to look like a triangle, diagram, you know, that sort of question. Some of them are about line geometry, some of them are about geometry word problems where they don't give you a diagram and you should draw it or sketch it out really quickly. But a third of the questions will involve a geometry concept. And that used to be true of the SAT as well. So interestingly in, in structuring the look of the test, more like the ACT, they made the math content-wise, less like the ACT. So that's the thing, if you're a person who likes geometry, that's a big plus for the ACT. There are approximately one-third of those questions are going to be geometry questions. And if geometry is your strong suit, that's the way to go. There are virtually no geometry questions. On the, and there are, there's like one per section, two maybe, but virtually no geometry questions on the SAT anymore. That's one of the big differences between the two tests now. Hmm. And I think that should be a determining, like, in addition to the differences between the reading sections, the essays, uh, the, the difference between the math sections should be a determining factor. My big gripe with families is if they feel that the differences between the two math sections on the two tests is the single most important 
determining factor. I disagree with that. And that's why I kind of mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, that I was going to push back against that a little. So the thing that I always hear the most often between the two is that the ACT gives you less time per question. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about the trickiness as I understand it. It's also you really need to be able to keep up the pace. Yes, and I'm going to talk about that. I just want to remember one thing that I forgot to say is that the, that reference information doesn't exist on the ACT. Okay, yeah, we were talking about that. We never got that far. Right, we, okay. we don't have that on the ACT. So if you need to know the diagram, I mean the diameter, the formula for the diameter of a circle, SAT will provide it, but you might not need it. Right. And ACT, you'll probably need it, but they won't give it to you. Exactly. So you have to have formulae memorized okay. for... Know your ACT. math. Yes, know your math. It's, it's one of our core strategies. I'm sorry, what was your question just now? My question was, oh, the time per question. Yes, so time per question. So ACT, you need to keep up the pace because they give you less than a minute per question and SAT is a little bit more than a minute per question. Is that with the math? You're very that? close. Okay. Yeah, basically that's true in general of the ACT. They give you less time per question on the reading, the grammar, or the English section, and the science section, you get significantly less than a minute per question. You can get anything from 35 to 48 seconds per question. Sounds and terrifying, but it it's is, really not when you break it down when you are actually doing it. Right. Well, you don't break it down that way when you're doing those sections. Those sections are all language-based sections, so they're organized by passage. So if you think about, oh, I've only got about five minutes to do this passage, I'm going to give myself five minutes to get through these, these questions in this passage. Or this passage on this section should take on average around nine minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can pace myself. So you don't want to think about it in, in time per question on those sections, reading, English, and science. On the math, on the ACT, you get 60 questions in 60 minutes. So it's exactly one minute per question. And so compared to the other three sections on the ACT, that sounds like a lot of time. But then you compare that to... The SAT. Right. On the SAT, in general, you get about a minute and a quarter per question. So you get, like, you think, oh, that's only 15 extra seconds. But that's 15 extra seconds for every question. Mm -hmm. That adds up to a lot of time. So what I have found, interestingly, is that even students who struggle with math, most students, not all of them, obviously, I'm not saying everybody, but most students can finish the SAT math sections with a little to sometimes a lot of time to spare. So that gives students a chance to go back and review questions that they may have skipped or guessed on or struggled with an answer but they really want to give it a second look. You don't have time for that on the ACT. In fact, the big thing about the ACT, in my opinion, is that it's designed so that the timing mechanism is how they apply the pressure. On the SAT, the pressure is these questions are super tricky. They're, they're, they're puzzles. They're mind benders. They're trying to trick you at every turn. On the ACT, they're telling the truth when they say our questions are generally more straightforward. So how do they apply the pressure if the questions are straightforward, more similar to what you see in school, and in some ways easier to approach? Not to do. I don't think they're all easy, but easier to approach because they're more straightforward. Well, you crank up the difficulty by shortening the amount of time you get. So that's, the ACT people do it on purpose. So in my observation, whether it's a student who's struggling or a student who's, you know, that beautiful, you know, four APs, you know, all honors, five point something GPA, that student that's like the stereotypical student who's, who's academically qualified mm-hmm. that we've talked about, that 95% of, of students at Ivy Leagues who are academically qualified, 
they're all going to struggle to finish ACT sections within the time limit, and the math is no different. Wow. Yeah. Um, the other question that I have for you, and I know that we're probably reaching time, but um, is the calculator versus not calculator. Yeah. Because I've graded an awful lot of these tests by hand mm -hmm. um, for small batches of kids with whom I work at right. some of the school partnerships that we have. And what I'm learning is some of these kids know their math. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them, the calculator ends up being a hindrance. Mm -hmm because they rely on this tool to figure it out for them and they're not right. sort of engaging their brain as fully. But I also noticed that some of them um, are doing very well on the calculator section and kind of terribly on the not calculator section. Yeah. So I'm learning two things. There are some kids that, um, there are some kids that rely too heavily, they use it as a crutch, the mm -hmm. calculator, and they're not making sure to make sure, you know, double check it with their logic but also that they know the math concepts but are making arithmetic mistakes mm -hmm. when they don't have the calculator with them. You're absolutely right. And this is all wrapped up with the calculator. So what you're talking about with the calculator section versus no calculator section is that on the SAT, there are actually two different math sections. One is the short section, which is 25 minutes in length and has 20 questions. And one is the long section, which is 55 minutes in length and has 38 questions. The short section is not called the short section by the college board. It's called the no calculator section. The long section is called the calculator section. So in that sense, there's a one section where you aren't allowed to use the calculator, and there's one that you are. The ACT doesn't have that. It's one single math section. It's 60 minutes long, 60 questions. You get to use the calculator for everything. So students just don't have this concept of it produces anxiety, basically, for SAT students. ACT students don't have that anxiety. They have other anxieties about the time limit, but they don't have this, can I use the calculator, can I not, I don't know what I'm doing, and they just use it or don't throughout the, se the section. According to the writers of both the SAT and the ACT, you should not need a calculator for any particular question. You should be able to answer any single question on the test by hand, no problem. They're all solvable. The SAT people used to say you shouldn't really use it, we let you use it, you shouldn't really need it. Now they say there are a couple of questions that you're probably going to be able to solve more easily because it involves large numbers or exponents and the calculator is a useful tool. The ACT people have always said that. The real anxiety comes from the SAT where you have that no calculator section and that calculator section. And you're absolutely right. I agree with you that a lot of students use the calculator as a crutch. The idea is that if you don't know how to solve that problem, randomly jabbing numbers into your calculator is not going to solve it for you. I always tell this to my students. Look at that calculator. Which one of you has a brain? It's not the calculator. So you have to do the problem solving yourself. You have to understand what that question is asking you to do. You have to formulate a strategy for defeating that puzzle, for beating that question. And the calculator should be the last thing you do. When I observe practice sections, practice tests, or even the real SAT, if a student starts jabbing at that calculator before they've even finished reading the question, I know they're going to get that one wrong. They just don't know what they're doing and they're hoping the calculator can solve it for them. No matter how much that calculator knows how to calculate, if you're giving it the wrong beginning numbers, mm -hmm. then yeah, so you need, your brain needs to be able to pick the right mm -hmm. formula, the right 
uh, equation to solve. The right, the right, and here's the big thing, the right order of operations. Calculators, most people don't realize this, but even the smartest of calculators, that mythical TI-84, does not understand order of operations. If you type in a question like, and they have these like Facebook memes you see, mm -hmm. where like, you know, solve this this riddle, this math puzzle, two times five divided by one plus three, and they do, and of course, a bunch of people get it wrong because they try to do it left to right. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to do the order of operations, which is multiply, divide, add, subtract in that order. Calculators don't do it correctly. They will do it in order left to right, not in order of operations. So it all depends on how you plug it into the calculator. That being said, you're absolutely right. Studies have shown, statistics have shown from the college board that students are consistently doing better on the long calculator section than they are on the short no calculator section. You'd think a short section, people would do better because it's shorter. It's 20 questions in 25 minutes. That's actually slightly more time per question than the 38 questions in 55 minutes on the calculator section. There are only five open response questions on the short section where there's eight on the calculator section and the students tell me they hate those questions. They find them frustrating. So you'd think students would do better on the shorter section, but because they don't have the calculator, they do worse. Now here's the thing. The test writers know that this is a no calculator section. So they write questions that don't require a calculator. So there's a lot more word problems and problem solving, puzzly problems on that short section. But even then, not, that, not, not necessarily at a higher percentage than the calculator section, it really is emotional, in my opinion. It's emotional. Students see, I don't have this tool. The tool's sitting there, but I'm not allowed to touch it. And that sets them up for this sense of anxiety, the sense of uh, uh, these nerves where they, they set themselves up for failure on that. And emotionally, they, they have a harder time with that section, and then therefore they perform worse. Which is again why practice is so important. Absolutely. The more you practice the no calculator section, the less anxiety you get about it, the, more, the better you'll do on the real test, the better you'll perform. Um, the last thing I want to just roll back to is the open response questions. That's the last really huge difference. Is that also called grid-in? Yes, the grid-ins. That's what we call it in the tutoring biz, the grid-ins. So that's the last major difference, in my opinion, between the two tests. The ACT, as I said, has 60 questions in 60 minutes, and they are all, all 60 of them, multiple choice. The SAT isn't like that. Every section of the SAT has a small handful of open response questions. We call them grid-ins because unlike open response questions on a state testing test, in Massachusetts it's called the MCAS, there's also the Praxis and there's a bunch of other tests. Park, things like that. Regents or something in New York. I, yeah, I think so. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, when they give you an open response question, for even for math, they want you to do some writing. They want you to write a sentence. I solved it this way. This is the technique I use. Blah, blah, blah. Here's a diagram of the way I solved it. They want you to write it out and they give you open space. On the SAT, these open response questions, all they want is the numerical answer and then you bubble it into the grid. So even though these aren't harder than the multiple choice questions, the students give me feedback that they hate the gradients. They just find them so much harder. And again, I believe it's an emotional response mm -hmm. that they don't have the comfort of the multiple choice answers. If you think about a student doing a multiple choice question, they go through the question, they come up with a numerical answer. They glance down at the answer choices and oh, there it's it is, there. It it's there. Right. Yeah. Now they're completely wrong, 
but it's there. And we talk about that with the students when we have classes, which is like how to avoid you know, common calculation errors, how to avoid partial answers where you're halfway through the problem and you get a result, but it's not the final answer. They'll put that in the answer choices just to tempt you away from the correct answer. So the, the test writers, both SAT and ACT, know this is going to happen. They do it on purpose. It's part of the trickiness of the two tests. That's one way where they're both very similar, the two tests. So even though the multiple choice answers are not there to help you, they're full of tricks and traps. Students feel better about them. When you have an open response question, there's no way to know, and again, I use that word even though they don't know they're right or wrong, they could very there's well no be wrong. There's no reassurance. Reassurance is the best way. There's no reassurance when you come up with a result. You don't know if it's one of the possible answer choices. There's no sounding board of the multiple choice answer choices to bounce your result off of. You just have to trust yourself and bubble it in. And I've seen students get the answer right in a practice test, in a homework assignment, and then not bubble in the answer because they just didn't believe in themselves. That is emotional, not mathematical. Mm -hmm. That's not a skill problem. That's a confidence problem. That's a, that's a trust problem. And so again, practice and review, just doing it again and again does work on that. But that's why classes, I think, still help. Even though both the SAT and ACT writers have worked hard to design their tests to be prep-proof, they're not. Because prep isn't just about you know, knowing the tricks. It's about building confidence through having that, that authority figure, that mentor to say, yeah, you're doing it right. You know what you're doing. Trust yourself. And we have a video, I believe, on how to fill in a grid in um, that will give them practice. We, yeah. did, we did that with one of our schools, um, has asked us to, to provide that. So I know that being able to see somebody do it. Right. Because uh, one of the things I noticed with the grid in is it gives you three or four spaces and you can put, if your number, if your answer is seven, you can put it in the first box, you can put it in the second right. box, you can put it in the third box. And sometimes that's intimidating. Yeah. So um, that's another great resource. For Absolutely, and, I, and that video will be posted to our YouTube page, where not only, uh, if you're listening to the audio podcast, uh, not only do we have these as audio podcasts available on a number of services, but we also shoot video and we put that up on our YouTube page, and uh, a lot of our instructional videos are going up there as well in a separate playlist. So that way we can keep our kind of conversational videos and our instructional videos a little bit separate so that you can see them separately as different playlists. So I think that kind of covers all the major differences between the two tests. Yeah, I think this has been really helpful. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Once again, I am Jason Breitkopf. I am the host of this series of podcasts and video episodes. With me is Christy Davin. My pleasure. Uh, we're co-workers here at Chiton. And thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're a YouTube viewer, please subscribe to our videos. Uh, that way you'll get notifications when new ones come out as we put them up uh, pretty frequently. And we're adding to our library of both conversations and instructional videos. If you're a podcast listener, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to share this video. Uh, as always, please subscribe so you can get all the new ones, uh, all the new episodes as they come out, the audio podcasts. And if you want to give us some feedback, you can do so on iTunes. Uh, you can always leave a review there. And we have uh, a Twitter uh, feed right now, at EndeavorPod. So that way you can respond to us if you ask any questions. I check that feed pretty much every day, so I will be happy to answer any questions. And as always, let's keep learning.